Welcome to the Broken to Unbroken podcast with Dr. Nick Askey, where we dive deep into how to eliminate pain and continue to train. All right, so it's pretty special for episode 29 of the Broken to Unbroken podcast with Dr. Nick and Dr. Nick. Huh. Um, he is truly the fittest doc. So that's where I kind of found him on Instagram. Uh, and it's kind of like brothers from another mother to where we're in the healthcare field. We were really passionate about walking the walk and, and staying fit and helping our patients get there. So Dr. Nick, thank you for taking the time today to record the podcast after you crush your soul times two at the gym this morning. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, no worries, Nick. Um, I, I'm, I'm happy to be here. I, I just want to correct one thing really quickly. So I think, you know, with what you just said about my Instagram username, the fittest doc, I think you took it the way a lot of people take it. Um, but the way I actually meant it when I created it is that it's in constant pursuit of the fittest version of myself. So an alternative to my name that, you know, I considered when I was making it is the fittest Nick. But, I, you know, essentially the fittest doc was was catchier and I liked it more. And, you know, I think it just speaks to a relentless um, uh, and essentially impossible pursuit to, to achieve the, the fittest you. And I think everybody should should have that as a pursuit. But, you know, let's be real. Everybody doesn't. And I, I think that's a very powerful concept because there's a reason they call it the practice of medicine. And you can take that concept to all aspects of your life. It's like, all right, let's suck a little less today. Let's be 1% better today. Uh, and so that, that's a, I, I think that's a great uh, kind of a, a, a deeper meaning to that name to where people don't think it's like, oh, this guy's just a narcissist and he, think he's, he thinks he's the fittest guy on earth or the fittest doctor, even though you could probably be on the podium in that, in that stance with Julie Fouché. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I, I like that you broke that name down. So people aren't like, Oh yeah, he just thinks he's the fittest doctor. Yeah. Yeah. No worries. I, it's, it's a, it's an ambiguity that's present in the name. So I completely understand where people are coming from when they, uh, when they choose that interpretation. But thankfully it seems at least most of my followers on Instagram have, have understood the alternative, uh, the alternative interpretation. So I'm definitely grateful for that. So can you go through where you grew up? And I know a little bit about where you kind of came from, that you kind of went to a rival Big Ten school that beat my school in basketball last night because I'm a Wisconsin guy. But can you kind of start from like your educational upbringing, what you grew up doing athletically, and then kind of how you got into the medical field and just kind of give people a little bit of background on on who you are? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I... Uh... I am the product of a of a divorced um, uh, home, so you know, for a good amount of my childhood, I lived with my mother uh, before uh, living with my father at about kind of seventh grade, eighth grade. Um, so, spent um, a good amount of time, uh, you know, obviously living with my father, and and that was uh, living in the Midwest. So, it was essentially you know raised in, in Lansing, Michigan. Um, went to uh, Everett High School, uh, kind of going through high school, you know, my, my singular goal was, okay, you know, 
kind of clean up my grades because my grades before high school were not the best. My grades when I was living with my mom were not the best, but my dad, uh, living, you know, moving in with my dad, he was always a perfectionist when it came to grades and studying and school and, um, you know, uh, moving in with my dad, my primary focus was soccer. I loved soccer growing up. You know, if you would have asked me what I wanted to be when I was a kid, I would have told you a soccer player. Um, and, uh, you know, my dad, uh, given that, you know, he knew that I also, there was also a part of me that wanted to go to med school and become a doctor. Um, and the fact that, uh, he's a PhD actually in chemical engineering. So he's, you know, extremely intelligent and, um, kind of, you, you know, his, his desire and his request, and and you know, I understood where he was coming from when I was growing up. Was okay, stop focusing on soccer, um, kind of back up off of that, and instead, um, you know, clean up your grades and make good grades enough through high school that you make it that you can at least apply to medical school and potentially, uh, potentially uh, get in. So, um, I. Uh, Proceeded to do just that, stop playing soccer as much, uh, which, you know, um, still kind of regret because I love soccer. But uh, that gave me the uh, freedom, the flexibility to kind of look for other athletic pursuits. And thankfully, the high school that I went to, uh, Everett High School, was essentially kind of the first high school in all of the United States to replace physical education, PE class with Taekwondo. So starting in you know the eighth grade um i essentially started uh started as a white belt brand new in taekwondo and every every single day it was quite literally the replacement for our pe class so it was my sixth hour so you know we would go we would train every day and essentially long story short by the end of my senior year i had achieved black belt um uh as well as you know other people in my class and um, and it was it was it was definitely a great kind of learning opportunity. And I feel that uh, there is a lot, frankly, that martial arts teaches you that I don't know if you can necessarily garner in other athletic pursuits. Um, but I was definitely grateful to have it. Uh, so, you know, finished Taekwondo um, as luck would have it is kind of the, the years would go on. Um, I, uh, you know, would train in jujitsu and judo. <clears throat> and then land on Krav Maga, but I'm skipping ahead uh, the story here. So essentially when I graduated high school, I, um, instead of going directly into medical school, um, or rather you can't go directly into medical school, but instead of going uh, directly into pre-med and, and kind of going that route, I, my grades were good enough in high school to get a, a full ride scholarship with the mandates that it had to be in the field of engineering, any any uh, f any particular field in engineering, but it had to be engineering. So, um, you know, I I obviously knew that wasn't what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, but I was also aware that I could apply to medical school being an art history major. It didn't matter. There was a lot of flexibility, you know, in, in applying to med school. So I essentially, you know, took that scholarship up on its offer and, and um, you had uh, four years of uh, mechanical engineering um, studies paid for, uh, essentially graduated from Michigan State University with a, with a BS degree in mechanical engineering. Uh, turned around and spent a little bit of time, um, about a year, kind of getting all the classes under my belt that I needed to to apply to medical school. Um, and uh, I did just that. 
um, took the MCAT, passed the MCAT, um, was accepted into, uh, actually interviewed, at, I think, five or six different med schools and essentially stopped the interview process um, right on the dot when I interviewed at Ohio State University uh, for med school because I, I liked everything about them from their curriculum to the to the uh, to the teaching staff to the to the campus, you know, so um, uh, went to Ohio State for med school and kind of during that time that I was at Ohio State, um, you know, med school is is uh, it's a it's a hell of a pursuit. Um, and it's, you know, a lot of people tend to, especially those who don't have any one on one experience with anyone in med school, they don't necessarily know how many hours med students dedicate to their to their studies. And I mean, it's literally, you know, 14 to 18 hour days in the library uh, studying almost every single day, especially the first two years, the, the first two years of med school pretty much across the country. Some some curriculums are starting to change this, but pretty much across the country are the preclinical years. And then the third and fourth year are the clinical years where you spend time in the hospital and actually spend time um, uh, seeing patients. So, you know, the preclinical years, you're studying a lot. And to be honest, um, Nick, the, those first two years, I needed a release, right? I needed something to kind of uh, help me um, kind of de-stress when, when I wasn't with, with a few hours of my day that I wasn't uh, studying. So what I ended up doing was kind of just continuing, you know, martial arts. And I uh, landed um, uh, at this place called um, Ohio Krav Maga and Fitness. And uh, I trained there and did Krav Maga for, for I think two or three months. And that was kind of my one hour of the day that I wasn't studying. And I needed that. I needed that release. And it was definitely uh, a huge part in why I didn't kind of lose my sanity in med school. And, 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 you know, probably cause there is a large contingent of medical students across the country who suffer from depression, a large contingent of medical students who unfortunately commit suicide. Um, and, and I believe that yes, you know, med school is stressful and the stressors are, are one part of it, but I, I believe, you know, that, uh, another part of it is that some some students don't find a way to relieve that stress, don't find a way to to kind of bring themselves down and reset each and every day. So um, anyway, continue going to Krav Maga two or three months uh, uh, for for the first kind of two or three months that I found the place. And then every single day um, uh, there were some people there. You know, Eric Holt is a name I remember and some other some other athletes who were kind of egging me on every single day like, hey, you know, um, we do this thing at the other side of the gym called CrossFit. You look like you would be amazing at it. You know, um, why don't you give it a shot? And I remember vividly laughing in his face and telling him that, you know, that I see them like at the end of my Krav Maga class every day. and They're all on the ground, wiped out, staring at the ceiling. I mean, looking like just the most miserable people I've ever seen. So, you know. Yeah, it like, would not oh. be Miko Salo approved laying on their back. <laughs> very true very true he would he would he would come down on them for that um but no essentially you know i i i just kept deferring and deferring and deferring and you know just giving excuses and then one day you know after crop i decided to give it a shot and i think that the reason why i decided to give it a shot is because you know i like most martial artists 
um, tend to believe that sparring, that there's no, it is from an endurance standpoint, there's really nothing that can compete uh, with sparring another human being, with getting in the ring and, and kind of, you know, fighting someone else and, and you know, kind of throwing down. And uh, from, a, from a cardio standpoint, I still very much believe that. But I think that that leads to a certain confidence when it comes to, okay, you know, do, do this CrossFit thing. Okay. So I, I, you know, did a workout thinking to myself, Oh, I'll survive. This shouldn't be a problem. It destroyed me, Nick. I just like everyone else, you know, was absolutely my, after my first class was absolutely on the ground, staring at the ceiling, questioning, you know, what the hell just hit me, who invented this, you know, what, what kind of sorcery this is, you know, all the, all the questions were popping into my head. So, um, I then I believe for a week or two weeks, I actually did both back to back. I would do Krav and then do CrossFit, you know, with a with the reasoning that it would it would make me even better. But unfortunately, I that's not something that you can sustain in med school when you have to dedicate, you know, a large contingent of your day to studying. So, you know, I reasoned, okay, you know, I I need to pick one between Krav and CrossFit. And I obviously love Krav, but I also understood the you know, the, the methodology behind CrossFit and the, um, the, you know, the, con, uh, the, the, the notion of CrossFit that it can kind of prepare you for the unknown and unknowable and, and, uh, you know, keep you fit to do anything that you'd like in your life. So, you know, with that, with that line of thinking in mind, I decided to stop doing Krav, um, and just focus on CrossFit and, and obviously studying at med school. So, um, that was, I believe, in 2000, either 10 or 2011. And um, yeah, you know, I've been been CrossFitting since. Um, I still at this point have not, unfortunately, uh, gone back to playing soccer or to uh, training in Krav Maga. But um, I will tell you that, you know, the, the first, you know, little bit of free time that I can piece out um, uh, from kind of my, my day. That's something that I want to do specifically, you know, probably crawl first and then CrossFit, but, uh, there's something about training and something about martial arts that I, I intensely miss and want to get back into it. And that's kind of like the old school, like pyramid of fitness is the application to sport back when they had like the CrossFit journal. Uh, and so in, that's what I tell people is CrossFit is not going to put you at 10 out of 10 to where you have like numbers that impress a power lifter or professional Olympic lifter and the same numbers that impress a person who does nothing but long distance run with your 5k time, but it's going to put you at seven out of 10 on the whole stereo equalizer for across the board. Absolutely. Yep. Be, be good at everything instead of perfect at one thing. And, you know, I'm a, I mean, think about it. Nick, from, from, you know, your practice with patients, that's essentially what you're doing, right? I'm sure that, you know, you're able to step back and assess yourself and know that when it comes to practicing medicine, you're not, you know, you don't know everything. You're not perfect at everything, but instead that should never be the goal. The goal should be kind of a broad, um, a broad kind of application of, of knowledge and that you garner as much as you can. Um, and that, you know, in the few, circumstances where you come across a patient with an ailment that uh, kind of goes beyond your depth of knowledge that you are able to put your ego aside and and admit to the patient like hey listen i may not be the best person to help you out with this but i do know somebody who is 
Um, so yeah, I think that that kind of notion of CrossFit of kind of be good at everything instead of perfect at one thing is, is something that kind of extends all throughout life that, that, you know, I've, I've noted ever since I, I observed it. So it sounds like CrossFit kind of gave you your, your outlet and foundation for stress relief. Um, this is kind of an off the script question because we can use big quotation number quotation marks for script because we don't really have one. But um, when I see this all the time with with new CrossFitters to where they have Reebok boxes on their porch every day, eighty dollar jump ropes, they're they're going to class every day and they don't really know how to recover. How do you portray Mm -hmm. that benefit to a patient when they're just like, what is this rest muscle and how do I train it in uh, the difference between being lazy and true, like intentional recovery? How do you kind of go about that with someone who's just really ODing on the Kool-Aid? Um. I think I, I think it's best to bring it back to injuries for people, right? Even if it's a brand new CrossFitter who hasn't necessarily been injured. Um, you know, I, I personally don't believe, you know, so back in what, 2012, 2013, there was a falsified, there was a, there was a study that was released with falsified data, uh, essentially portraying CrossFit as being dangerous and causing a lot of injuries. That study has since been retracted. You know, CrossFit legal team has has won the case against them and and essentially, um, you know, uh, made made a joke of that entire uh, of that entire uh, study. Unfortunately, kind of the damage has been done. Um, and you know, with that study, many people seem to erroneously believe that CrossFit will cause them more injury than any other physical activity that they can do. Um, so when I, you know, approach people who are brand new to CrossFit and just kind of going, you know, you know, just gunning it every single day and, and not necessarily considering the power of rest, I let them know, at least, you know, and in my opinion, nobody necessarily <clears throat> CrossFit doesn't injure people. Um, it, what I found from people who have become injured, uh, while they're doing CrossFit is that more often than not, they are a either completely letting their ego take control instead of being in control of their ego and picking weights or picking rep schemes or picking workouts that are simply not in their wheelhouse at the moment, right? Um, and instead of kind of knowing what they're capable of and reeling themselves in, um, and you know you know, keeping in mind that, that this is a, this is a, this is a process. This is time-based. This is something that, you know, if you stay in it for years, you will, all the things that you can't do now, you will eventually be able to do, but you, that you will not get there by rushing things. Um, you know, so I'll let people know that, but I also believe as, as you have implied that a lot of people will injure themselves because they're simply not they're, they're not resting enough. You know, they, they don't understand the restorative effects of rest. They don't understand that, you know, for example, with, with double unders, if you don't have double unders, you can sit there and practice all day, um, and just kind of, and, you know, hammer away at them. And more than likely you will be frustrated. 
every single day. If you refuse to take a break from them and refuse to let your body rest from workouts otherwise, but you know, the magic happens uh, when you rest, the magic happens when you let yourself recover, um, especially with sleep. I'm a big proponent and big believer in sleep. And, um, you know, with something like double unders that requires a great amount of coordination, I mean, the neurogenesis that's happening in the cerebellar part of your brain when you have practiced double unders and you're giving yourself enough time to rest is the reason is the is the explanation as to why many people you know can practice double unders for a couple weeks for a couple months walk into the gym one day and they try it and all of a sudden they can do it right so it, it, it was that recovery it was that it was them giving themselves time to kind of let their brain, um, you know, do do the magic that, that their brain is capable of. So, you know, I think that, you know, when I'm trying to explain to people the benefits of rest, you just have to put it in the context of injury and injury prevention. And obviously, implicitly with that, you know, longevity with CrossFit, um, which, you know, people can argue against all they want. But as long as people, I'm sure you've heard of this name, Nick, but as, as long as people like Jacinto Bonilla, uh, who's what, 80, 81 years old now and crossfitting. I mean, if you Google this guy, Jacinto Bonilla, he's, you know, 80 something and fitter looking than people half his age, you know. So there is something to be said there is something to be said about CrossFit and longevity, but you have to approach it the right way. You have to emphasize recovery. You have to emphasize rest. Um, and, you know, if, if you don't, more often than not, injury will follow you. And when that happens, yeah, you can sit here and refuse to accept personal responsibility and blame CrossFit. But in reality, CrossFit didn't injure you. You injured yourself. Yeah, and I, I think that, I've made a lot of mistakes because I started CrossFit back in like very early 2007 and it was like main site watching YouTube videos of Bergener and his daughter in the garage and learning how to snatch off of YouTube videos. And it was just the main site and CrossFit football. And so we did a bunch of dumb stuff to where it was, okay, I'm not going to rest today. I'm going to do Murph instead. Um, in, you add the cortisol load with going through graduate school with mm -hmm. uh, the cortisol load of just not having a rest day in the gym and you're going to get hurt doing something that is not really uh, brag worthy. It's going to be uh, pulling a plate off the bar or just coming down off the pull-up bar and rolling your ankle because your CNS is just blasted. Um, so I think that it's important that we kind of make some mistakes so that we can educate our patients. Like, yeah, I've already kind of walked through the fire and I can protect you from making the same mistakes that I did. Um, so talk to me about your current practice and kind of the demographic of people you see, uh, how many in-person versus telemedicine. Cause I'm really curious for, for myself too, just to kind of see what kind of demographic of patient that you see, um, in, in your practice, both in person and telemedicine. Um, so wait, you just want to see the, the volume. You just want to know the volume of people I see. No, in, just in... like kind of your demographic. Do you see a lot of sedentary people, a lot of active people, kind of a mix? Um, I, 
I see. Understood. So in person, I, you know, I'm, uh, it's kind of fortuitous for me. I live in essentially the most, um, active. I live in a state with the most active amount of people in the country. I live in Colorado. And, uh, with that, um, you know, I've, I've now seen, I've been fortunate enough to see the disparity or the differences rather in kind of demographic between Midwest and kind of, uh, obviously where I am now. Um, and, uh, you know, with that said, people here in Colorado are very healthy, right? Um, obesity, uh, uh, and kind of um, uh, metabolic disease that's you know often secondary to uh, being sedentary and poor dietary choices um, is is lower here than in you know most other places in the country, um, and uh, you know so like I said I'm, I'm very fortunate to see very very active uh, healthy individuals here um, in in uh, Colorado. Uh, my telemedicine practice, I definitely would say that it's even, I mean, they're even fitter people than I see day to day. Uh, and I think the the main difference that, you know, I enjoy about, um, you know, SteadyMD and, and seeing patients online is uh, patients on SteadyMD actually seem to be much more proactive about their health, right? And are busy asking me, um, hey, you know, what can I do to optimize my sleep? What can I do to, you know, optimize my nutrition, to optimize my workouts? Um, you know, uh, they're, they're much more kind of open to uh, trying different things out and experimenting uh, and, and kind of finding, you know, what what could be a potentially better solution for them. Uh, while I find that patients in clinic um, tend to be patients who I see physically in clinic tend to be more uh, uh, tend to be more of the mindset of oh you know I'm only ever going to go to the doctor if I need the doctor if I'm sick um, and uh, my my issue with thinking like that is that that is a reactive um, mindset as opposed to a proactive mindset. You know, and the analogy that I'll make with with many people all the time, whenever I hear that excuse in clinic is, hey, listen, you know, you drive a car and, uh, you know, uh, if I were to ask you how often you change the oil, what, what would you tell me? And oftentimes they're able to say, OK, you change your oil in a car every 3000 miles. Um, and then I will ask them, OK, well, if that's the case, you know, if, if that's what you do, then I I you know, offer one question. Why, why, why don't you just ignore that and keep driving until you're for 20,000 miles, 30,000 miles, 40,000 miles. And, uh, often their answer is because their car will break down. And then I ask them, okay, so what's the big deal? The car breaks down. You're going to take it to the shop, just like you would have taken it to the shop for an oil change at 3000 miles. So just take it to the shop. And then they tell me, uh, well, taking it to the shop after breaking down, after driving that many miles will be much more expensive than an oil change. And usually at that point that they say that, they connect the dots. They understand why, in my opinion, telling your doctor that you only will ever go to the doctor when you're sick or when you need them uh, is, is a very, is a, is kind of a falsity and and shouldn't necessarily be the mindset of anybody. Um, You know, I believe that prevention matters. If you want to stay off medication for the rest of your life, which should be your goal, you need to be very proactive about your health. Um, and you need to be constantly thinking about things that you can do to prevent disease as opposed to simply to, to responding to them. So, you know, like I, like I said, I tend to find that patients on SETI-MD are much more, 
much more on top of things when it comes to, okay, Dr. Nick, how can we, you know, how can we make sure that we're, we're very proactive about uh, our health and, and make sure that, you know, no issues uh, spring up in a couple years that are going to be much, much more expensive to treat than, than they would ever be to prevent. Yeah. And I think that you and I deal with very different demographics because half of my patients are pretty athletic and, and they're high level gymnasts or they're going to play college or pro baseball being in, or high level football players being in South Texas. That's kind of the king. Uh, but then I, the other half of my patient population is San Antonio is uninfor- unfortunately one of the fattest cities in the country controlled by kind of petroleum driving the economy. So people don't walk anywhere. It's not the most walkable city. They have done better at being active uh, since I moved here, but Mm -hmm. it seems to be very different low hanging fruit recommendations for people that are really on the ball and they're doing 90% of the stuff right. And you just have to guide them to the other 10% that they may be falling short. And then those Mm -hmm. the people that it's a lot more efficient to point out like the one thing they do right, it's like, hey, you put clothes on going out of the house today, but that's about the only thing you're doing right for your health. Uh, and there's very different conversations with both of those demographics going, okay, tortillas are not little edible plates. You don't have to have a tortilla with every single bite of food that you put it in your mouth. You don't have to drink sweet tea at every meal. Uh, and so those are kind of, they used to be frustrating conversations for me, but I'm like, Hey, like the information I assume is out there in everybody's brain. When you tell them what a carbohydrate is in that, they, they can eat more protein and fat, regardless of what the game changers documentary said on Netflix. And they're probably (laughs) going to improve their metabolic profile versus someone who's like dabbled with intermittent fasting in, in a keto diet or they've tried everything under the sun and they're at 8% body fat and they want to get to 6% body fat or get their friend time below three minutes. I think that those are very different conversations that we have to have. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that, you know, one thing that you're implying and I absolutely agree is that you need to have the level of rapport. You, You need to I hate like coming across patients who I feel like I can't be honest, you know, Um, I don't ever want to feel like I have to bite my tongue with a patient. Um, Obviously, you, you know, everything that that someone can say, whether positive or negative, uh, can be said in a respectful manner. Um, So, you know, even when I have to tell my patient and be very forward and frank with them about their choices and kind of you know, my recommendations pertaining to to their choices and possibly changing things, you know, I I feel that you should, there should be a way to do so in a respectful manner. And I think that really the only way that you can do that with most patients is if you have a baseline level of, of rapport and, you know, they, they can tell just talking to you that you're a straight shooter, you know, and that you're not the type to sit there and BS them and, and that you are obviously working in their best interest and you're going to tell them things that are in their best interest. And, you know, that unfortunately, you know, you will not sit there and coddle them and you will not support, you know, their uh, their poor choices, whether dietary or lifestyle or, you know, that you're going to tell them you're going to tell them the truth. And, yeah, you know, that may obviously lead to some people who just, you know, 
really like, you know, being lied to or really like being coddled or really like being told what they want to hear, it may lead to those people leaving you and, and not wanting to be your patient. And that's completely fine. You know, I, I don't see anything wrong with that. Um, you know, unfortunately, in my opinion, if you want to have kind of a self-defeating kind of mindset and self-defeating approach, I should not be allowed to stand in your way. So, um, but, you know, when it comes to the people who are the opposite of that and people who, you know, do appreciate you being honest with them, even when it's something that uh, they may not want to hear, you know, I think those are the people who, who kind of find their way and find their way to, to yourself and, and uh, myself also. So what low hanging fruit do you find with these people that are really proactive and they're, they're doing a lot of the right things? Do you feel like they make their, their kind of hanging back or that last little bit that they want is due to a lack of discipline, a lack of information, a misinterpretation of the information? What do you find is the most common uh, hang up for them or the log jam, so to speak, that you kind of make them aware of, what do you find as a kind of a common thread there? It's usually just a lack of information. Um, and, and I'm, you know, I'm usually able to, to help people understand, you know, what it is that they may be missing and, and kind of will go into as in depth a conversation about it as they need to hear or would like to hear but more often than not it's it's a it's simply a lack of information and i mean that's that's the whole thing with being a <clears throat> with being in the healthcare field in, in my opinion right is your doctor should have absolutely no say there the, you should never feel like your doctor has 100% control over you that's not our purpose that's not that's not our that's not what you know being a physician is about especially when you know, you consider the principles of, of you know, uh, medicine, um, you know, essentially, uh, whether we're talking about autonomy um, for, for, you know, of, of the patients or kind of beneficiaries. So essentially that, um, you know, that physician should act in the in the best interest of their patients. I mean, these are all things that are kind of part and parcel of uh, medical ethics. So, in, in my opinion, you know, you, your, your patients should always feel that, um, that you have simply supplied them with information and that if they want to continue to make the bad choice, given the new information that they have, then absolutely make the bad choice. For example, here, here's a great example of that. Often I'll talk with patients, do an annual physical or whatever, and I'll, I'll ask them about their smoking history. They'll tell me that they still smoke. Right now, I think doctors of old or doctors in the past would hammer away. Hey, listen, smoking is bad. You need to stop smoking. This is terrible. These are all the things that can do to you. Instead, I believe with something like that, the best first question that any doctor should ask is, how do you feel about your smoking? Is it something you would like to continue or is it something you would like to quit? And, you know, if you are assuming that your patient has the mental um, uh, competence and, and obviously the autonomy to make their own decision, then you will take their answer and 
and kind of act accordingly. So if, you know, if I come across someone who smokes and they tell me that oh, they have no interest in quitting, guess what? I stop talking about that and I move on to the next thing. So essentially, you know, in my opinion, being a doctor should be about giving your, giving your patient the freedom that, that they need, um, to, to, uh, you know, to, essentially act in their best interest as a human being. And if they want more knowledge, they should have more knowledge, but you should never sit there and lecture them about, um, about, you know, why their decisions are bad. You should just kind of give them information, uh, plus or minus, you know, on, on their decisions and then let them decide where they want to go with you on it. And to kind of connect to that smoking conversation, I think that when people have a bad habit or something that we know is kind of, keeping them from achieving their, their health goals. I think that mm -hmm. you have to have two different approach with approaches with kind of changing that habit. If the patient does show a motivation to changing it. And there are sure. some people that are like Tigger and you have to go all whole 30 on them and go, Hey, we need to take your cigarettes away, clear out the house, no nicotine, cold Turkey, nothing. Uh, Cause you mm -hmm. have to kind of take their crack away from them. Because they, mm -hmm. if you give them one little taste, they're back at it again. Uh, and then there are some people that you have to kind of give them baby steps and go, all right, we're going to break this down into little sizable chunks and we're going to have a linear progression of getting you to the finish line. But I found that it's pretty interesting and it does take kind of a, a personality read on the patient because uh, the sure. more neurotic ones seem to be ones that you have to like take their crack away from them. But the ones that are just kind of a little bit more passive or not super type A, you kind of have to give them a roadmap, kind of a shoots and ladders uh, journey on how to get there. But it has to be kind of a gradated process. Mm -hmm. Agreed. So what would you say your like your personal experiences in uh, kind of being stressed in medical school, probably being fatigued with lack of sleep and seeing the results of that? Uh, and then just kind of having a fitness journey from like soccer to Taekwondo to Krav to CrossFit. Uh, how has that kind of influenced uh, your, your practice of medicine and how has it kind of benefited your interactions with patients? Um, I think it's influenced my practice of medicine because I'm much more lifestyle modification based. You know, I don't believe that the solution uh, is ever found in a quick fix. I don't believe the solution is ever found in a pill, um, especially given the myriad of symptoms. I'm sorry, not symptoms, but the myriad of adverse effects and, and side effects that are associated with pretty much, you know, every pill you can you can pop in your mouth. Um, so, so essentially, yeah, I think that, you know, my background has led to, has led to me understanding the, the power of medicines and, and kind of their pluses and their minuses and their, uh, their, their uses, but also understanding that, uh, lifestyle changes, uh, and modifications are essentially the most pervasive, uh, um, changes that that one can make to their daily life that kind of affects everything and does so with you know limited um if not entirely absent uh side effect profiles uh so you know i think that thankfully i've come across many patients who who understand that uh 
I, I try and make it clear with people that, you know, I'm not the type of doctor who will just throw medicines at you. And, you know, if that's the type of doctor you want, hey, I'm not going to sit here and judge you. I have no right to do that. Absolutely. Go go find that type of doctor. But you won't you won't find that with me, unfortunately. And I think people because I've been in my practice for about 10 years and I I know that people are kind of wising up to uh, like oral steroids, epidural steroid injections, joint injections. Like I, I tell people that those are tools that we can use for leverage to give you a window to where you can rehab, but they don't fix the problem. And I, I found more patients that are just kind of aware of that on their own because they've had the injections or they've had the shots and they come back in three to four months and they're like, they're in my office because they're like, yeah, I've tried that and it didn't work. And I know that that's mm -hmm. not fixing it. So I think it's mm -hmm. important that we have a lot of boots on the ground to where not we're not demonizing medicine or big pharma but realizing it that it's it was kind of an overutilized we were kind of penicillin penicillining everybody to death with opioid medications uh thinking that we were fixing people uh, but i think that people are kind of pulling the wool off of their eyes and they're kind of seeing it and i think it's important that we're able to use that window of realization to to kind of drive home the message that drugs are not evil uh, like if you let someone walk out of your office with a systolic blood pressure of 200, that wouldn't be responsible without giving them a blood pressure medication, but they're tools to be used at the appropriate times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'll often, I think the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the scenario you just pointed out is a great one, right? I actually saw a patient just this last week who absolutely um, had fit the diagnosis for hypertensive urgency, you know? And uh, so I started him on a blood pressure medication, absolutely. But um, I also gave him, you know, a, a myriad of different lifestyle modifications that he could make. Um, and when I do that, what I'll often do is I'll say, hey, listen, you know, I'm going to start you on this pill. But here are also a list of other things that I would like you to do. And what I'd like you to keep in mind is that if, if you can do these things and if you can make these changes uh, and we track your blood pressure over a period of, of weeks to months, uh, we could very well, you know, within the next couple months, take you off of this medication. So I don't want you to feel that just because I have put you on this medication that you are kind of, um, you know, uh, stuck with it for the rest of your life there there is a there is a way out um uh but you'll need to work with me and you'll need to not just you know take the quick fix of popping a pill but you'll need to do the hard work of changing things uh in your day-to-day -day life and you know the plus side is if you do those things um there is a there's a great chance that we'll be able to take you off of these medications so i think that when i have that conversation with people more often than not they understand that okay listen you know dr nick gave me a, a way out of taking this pill but i'm going to need to put in the hard i'm going to need to put in the time and and in the hard work and and uh you know Ultimately, uh, at least there's there's hope for for getting off this pill. But I essentially entirely agree. You have to be able as a, you know, in in uh, in the healthcare field, seeing patients, you have to be able to read the situation and determine, okay, is this problem bad enough uh, that uh, 
you know, starting medication is absolutely warranted right now. And, you know, if you don't do that, then I agree with you that you are absolutely being negligent in, in your care of that patient. So as far as if we were to connect this with your practice, uh, what motivated you to get into the telemedicine side of things? Because that's something that uh, the company that I work for is kind of investigating that piece of it because it's so convenient for the patient. And there's a lot of things that are not necessarily necessary to be in the presence of the patient and palpate and look in their eyeballs and and do a, a very thorough in-person exam. There's a lot of them that you get 80%, 90% of the diagnosis with the history. So what kind of interested you in doing the telemedicine side of things? Um, <clears throat> I think what you just alluded to is, is a, is a large part of it that, uh, you know, a lot, you go into med school thinking that being a doctor is all about prescribing medicines and kind of getting people out of dire situations, but, um, you kind of, uh, get into clinical practice, uh, either third and fourth years of med school and then residency and then practice after that. Uh, and you, you come to find out that a lot of medicine for people is reassurance. A lot of medicine is education. It's literally passing knowledge on to the patients and, and having them ask you about, you know, you know, what are the potential risks? What are the potential benefits? You know, how does this medication work? Um, uh, and, and essentially, you know, a lot of, a lot of things you could, you could communicate without necessarily laying a hand on the patient and, and still have one, you know, heck of a beneficial effect. Um, so I think that's definitely part of what, uh, uh, was behind me going into telemedicine. Another thing specifically that kind of, uh, uh, invoked me to, to, you know, get into steady MD is just the fact that I do believe that there is a certain value. Um, so steady MD is all about essentially having alignment with your, with your physician. So, uh, as I kind of implied earlier, a large contingent of my patients on steady MD are very active, not necessarily CrossFit, whatever they choose to, whatever they choose to kind of, you know, um, uh, partake in, but they're very active in kind of whatever athletic endeavor that they, that they choose. And, um, because of that, uh, there is, I think that there is a value to be, to be, uh, noted for, having a doctor who is also very much into physical activity and having a doctor who's very much into the type of lifestyle that you have, um, as opposed to a doctor who, I don't know, you tweak something, right? You tweak a muscle and you go see them in clinic and they tell you, okay, well, you need to stop what you're doing right now. Whatever, you know, whatever the, the, the activity was that you were doing, you need to, you need to stop that. And unfortunately, you know, because of the, authority that many doctors carry with their patients, many patients will actually entirely, uh, entirely agree and, and follow what, you know, uh, whatever it was that their doctor wanted them to quit. And to me, that's, that's heartbreaking. That's depressing. You know, whether it's, you know, a patient is into snowboarding or basketball or whatever, and, you know, they, they strain a muscle or they injure themselves, you know, the, the solution in my mind as a physician talking to your patient should never be, okay, stop what you're doing. 
that should never be the answer. You know, the answer should instead be, hey, how do we modify what you're doing so that you don't, you don't, um, you know, impart further injury onto yourself, that you give yourself the time uh, required to recover, but that you keep doing what you love that is keeping you active, that is helping to, to you know, lower um, or rather increase your insulin sensitivity, um, you know, that is helping to protect you from a myriad of, of uh, you know, diseases that, that you aren't even necessarily aware of. Um, so, you know, I, I think that specifically as it pertains to steady MD as telemedicine, you know, I was very much attracted to it because uh, I think that there's, there's value in, in having alignment uh, in, in your lifestyle as a physician, having alignment with your patient's lifestyle, uh, that you are much more understanding of where they're coming from, from much more understanding of their passions and their desires to get back to playing whatever sport or whatever activity that they were doing and, 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 you know, how, uh, how great it makes them feel and, and that you should, you should do whatever you can as their doctor to, to facilitate that and to get them back to, to doing the activity that they like, instead of, you know, being the type of doctor who, you know, you don't have that background. You, you, you don't, you know, you don't practice what you preach, for example, and you don't, you know, work out or you you're not engaging in any physical activity and you're just telling your patients to hey you know i don't know walk more every day or or get more activity every day but you truly have no idea what you're talking about you truly have no idea how you know how the, the nuances of the recommendations that you're making and and you know I, I i believe that a lot of patients can can pick up on that because you know we're ultimately all human and you can always tell somebody who who doesn't live the life that they preach. Yeah. And I think we have very, very close approaches on that because it drives me insane when a patient comes in and saying like, doctor said, I need to stop running because I'll get arthritis in my knees. And I'm like, I have this study on my desk to show that it's actually protective of arthritic change and it protects the cartilage in the knees in people saying, oh, squats are bad for your knees. It's like, well, so is being fat. Uh, in in mm -hmm. deadlifts are bad for your back. And that's why I like the Ripito quote of you can eat, if you're over 35 years old, you can have an old worn out weak spine or an old worn out strong spine. The old and worn out is there. You have a choice whether it's weak or strong. And if you want a strong spine, you deadlift. Mm. And people like yeah. that quote because they're like, okay, mm -hmm. I'm not damaged goods. I'm not made of China. Uh, and, and if you empower the patient with a strategy that they have control over versus like, oh, you're just old and it's like, you just have right knee pain. Like the left knee is the same age. Like it's not age. Like we got to figure out what's causing it and get you back to tearing it up in the gym and doing what you like to do. I absolutely agree. Yeah. And, and when people will ask me, okay, do I need to be at the gym? Do I need to, do I need to deadlift or, or squat or, you know, should I just stop doing all that stuff? And I think it's, it's really simple when you kind of break down to patients that there is a difference between functional movements and non-functional movements and that you should be doing functional movements, right? When you drop a pen, when you're writing something and you drop a pen and you bend down to pick it up, that is a deadlift. 
it doesn't matter that the pen isn't even a pound, right? Or, or sure as hell isn't the 200 or 300 pounds that you may be deadlifting in the gym, but to pick up that pen, that is a deadlift. So with that said, you know, I, I think it's very important to, to relate to your patients, the, the, uh, the similarities in, in movements between that that they find in the gym and, and that that they find in real life, you know, for example, a squat, a squat, you know, when, when people tell me, oh, I don't need to be at the gym, you know, squatting or, or should I stop that and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay, well, you know, how are you going to sit on the toilet? And, and, you know, when your bowels are moving and you need to go number two, how are you going to do that without squatting? You know, so ultimately these movements are going to happen in your real life. You, you cannot prevent them. You, you un, unless you just plan on staying sedentary and in bed all your life, then you, you're going to do these movements. The question is, do you know the mechanics? Are you, are, um, have you been exposed through the gym environment? Have you been exposed to proper deadlift mechanics such that when you have to bend over and pick up that pen? or when you have to squat down on the toilet, that you are moving properly such that you don't injure yourself. Because more often than not, people are injuring themselves just doing common day in and day out things. Oh, Dr. Nick, I strained my back, you know, I don't know, picking up my 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 one-year-old or my two-year-old, right? And you, you, you listen to that. And as, as you know, somebody who who is a doctor or somebody who's active, you listen to that. And the first thing that comes across my mind is, okay, this tells me that this patient doesn't know the proper mechanics of, of picking something up, picking a load up, you know, and that if you don't know those mechanics, time after time, after time in your life, you will have random strains and muscle pulls and injuries simply because you're not moving well. And you, you don't know how to move well because you haven't exposed yourself to what you needed to expose yourself to in the gym, which is essentially, in my opinion, the gym is nothing but a lab. It is quite literally a, a, a lab where you have the you have the latitude, you have the the freedom to play around with different movements and find what is the biomechanically correct way to move. And if you don't take advantage of that, like I said, you know, you will come, you will experience injury in, in your real life because you, you don't know how to move. It's as simple as that. Yep. First move well, then move often. Absolutely. So Dr. Nick, I really do appreciate you taking the time between crushing workouts and treating patients on a Saturday. Uh, I really appreciate you, uh, re being so accessible and kind of us tracking each other down with busy schedules to get this thing recorded. And I know that there's a lot of high value material for our listeners here. So if people want to check you out on any platform, can you kind of give us your, your information where people can find you online? Sure. Um, so first and foremost, uh, I am at, um, you can have me as your physician, uh, on steadymd.com. Um, just steadymd.com. And uh, with that, um, you can find out exactly, you know, if I offer services, if I can be the doctor for you uh, in your state. I'm currently licensed in 23 states. 
Um, so, you know, if you live in one of those 23 states that I'm licensed in, I can absolutely be your physician. Uh, and SETI-MD is great uh, just because, you know, it is quite literally, you know, a doctor in your pocket. You have access to me 24-7. Um, it is, you know, I in terms of latitude of things that I can do, it's just like a doctor in an office, right? I can write you for uh, write you prescriptions for drugs, um, write you referrals to other doctors, um, obviously give you recommendations, talk, you know, we talk, uh, there's three methods of communication with SteadyMD. You can either chat back and forth with your doctor on a, essentially um, um, texting me, uh, you can call us on the phone or you, we can video chat. So I, you know, I love the, the flexibility that it offers me with my patients um, other than uh, SETIMD, you can also find me on Instagram. My Instagram handle is thefittestdoc.com. Uh, that's actually the same handle that I have on Twitter. Um, and uh, yeah, that's that's essentially where you can find me on the internet. Awesome. Well, thanks for taking the time. Uh, and I hope the rest of your weekend goes well. And if we come up with anything to, to talk about in new CrossFit news or or healthcare, I'd, I'd love to reach out to you again. Sure, absolutely. I'd love to love to talk to you again whenever uh, whenever you have some free time because I understand you're a busy man also. Uh, you got to stay busy to stay out of trouble. That's true. That's true. All right, thanks, awesome. Dr. Thanks Nick. Yeah, thanks for your time. Bye, Nick.